0: I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum.
1: There are of course those who do not want us to speak. Greed, deception, abuse of power, that's no plan. They they keep knowledge, you know, They're, they're total masters of deception. They manipulate everything. You know these these pricks at the helm that lie to hell why do us.
0: It's... I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lorensky.
2: I never told anybody to lie. Not a single time. Never. These allegations are false. And I need to go back to work for the American people. They're
0: they're setting it up for the great deception. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it it all revolves around the great deception. Yeah, bingo. And L.A. and I talked about that. I said, L.A., is this the great deception? And he didn't hesitate. He said, absolutely. I never used to question before, and now I question everything. Well, we are opposed around the
1: world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day.
0: The world needs a wake-up call.
1: And welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Thanks for joining me. Tonight, we have a very interesting deep dive here uh, that I've been working on for a little bit on the human zoos. Yeah, you heard that right. Human zoos. Yeah, we, we only thought that there were animals in zoos or people, you know, actors, paid actors. Nope this blew my mind guys this is one of those where you're like this this can't be real and if it is it had to happen you know middle ages this is middle age behavior right no <laughs> there were human humans being used in zoos up until the early 2000s really majorly the last time they were used in you know, a real derogatory manner was 1958. Yeah, 1958. So think about that. 75 years ago, less than 75 years ago, there were human zoos that people would pay to go look at other human beings. Unbelievable. So before we get into that, I wanted to just remind you all if you want to donate to the show, and I want to thank all my patrons that have do donate to the show. It helps tremendously, and I appreciate it. So you can go to the Great Deception at uh, or you can go patreon.com/slash the Great Deception Podcast. You can hit me up on Instagram at the Great Deception Podcast as well. Um other than that, I don't have any housekeeping, and I got a pretty lengthy presentation here, so let's dive in. So, like I said in the intro, when I was looking at this stuff, this first came up. I had never heard of this again, never heard of this in my life, until I was looking at the Chicago World Fair a couple years ago. And when I'm looking, they're talking about human zoos, and I'm like, the hell's a human zoo? You know, I don't, you hear now it's more of a, you know, a different, a whole different meaning and you start looking at it and they went and they rounded up people of different ethnicities and brought them to the fair, created a encampment, you know, like they have for animals at the zoo with walls and they created a little habitat inside and they wanted these people to live their daily life so that these white people could come watch them. Now, what kicked this all off in, in this, you know, think about it. There's been human slaves for time immemorial, so we're told. But there's this thing about humans and keeping other humans captive. Right or under their control, where you don't see that much in the animal kingdom, it's very tribal, you know. In a sense, it's it's kill or be killed. There's none of this pets idea. idea. This the, and and that's what I equate this to. These these colonials are treating these native people from all over the world as their pet, as if they're animals, pets. They're trading them, selling them, using them for profit. All the while, humiliating these people, but also, in a sense, demoralizing, diminishing the value of their culture, of their legitimacy as a race. You're going to hear... Darwin, this guy, you know, and and his theory of evolution—that's—it's very racist in a sense that you know the way it was interpreted by these these educated folk, these top hat folk, these Europeans, the colon the colonizers. Okay, and when we look at this map here on this first, and and so by the way, you're gonna wanna go to Spotify and uh, check out the video for this or check it out on my, on my patron because this uh, it's all presentation here. So on this first slide here, we, you see the places that that had people displayed at zoos. So you have the United States, you have uh, most of Europe, uh, at least all of Western Europe, you have India, you have one country in africa and japan. and so it says down here some ethnic uh ethnic racial groups of people that were displayed black people, chinese, koreans, native americans, indians and polynesians. and what we start seeing here is up on this upper right hand photo you see these people viewing these you know black people living out their lives in in, in a uh essentially a cage. Down below, you see one of our wonderful top hat colonizers and a tribe of folks that I'm sure they took against their will and used them as a display. Now, where does this idea come from? You know, this idea that that races are, are of, of different values. Well, none other than our friend Charles Darwin when he came out in 1859 with the origin of species, right? That's what you know it as, but you have to, and, and, and then it goes on. The whole title is the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Not many people get to that bottom line or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. So there's favored races now, and this is the 1859. Well, when does this all start happening? Right around that time. And uh, before we get started here, anyone that wants to go check it out, uh, there is a great documentary that I'll reference in here. It's called Human Zoos. Um. I'm just trying to see what the actual uh oh, shoot. It's it's called Human Zoos and something with the struggle of racism in America and but I plan on posting it the whole documentary. I'll put to my patron um, after I post this episode. So, but it, it's a really wild documentary on kind of the history human zoos, the origins, and, you know, some of the nasty shit they did. And, and basically, you know, one of the interpretations of this was that obviously the evolution was that we, we came from, there was a transition from ape to man. And what these brilliant minds, many of them from Ivy League schools, from the parasitic class, you would say, they decided that black people were apparently the missing link between ape and man. And, and this is where they were going to show people because a lot of, uh, you know, white colonial folk had never seen a black person before or so we're told. So what they're going to do is they're going to introduce the black man to the white population in, in their own manner, in, in the way that they see it should be. Now, now mind you, that it means they're going to be caged. They're against their will in a lot of times. And if it was by their will, they were paid so disgustingly low that it wasn't even worth their while. They were basically lured into this. They were trapped, so to speak. And many of them died. That's the saddest shit about this aside from the humiliation that i mean it's all despicable but the fact that so many people died and 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 the parasites even took advantage of that and we'll get into that here in a second so again it goes back to darwin back in the 1850s the whole idea of natural selection and uh, and and evolution it's just oh yeah okay so let's take a listen here young Darwin embarked on
3: a ship sent to chart the coasts of South America because he wanted to collect and study exotic animal specimens. What he found on the five-year trip would lead him to question his beliefs. What if species weren't as permanent and perfect as everyone thought? In Argentina, Darwin found fossils of what looked like giant armadillos and sloths. Clearly, these animals had existed at some point, but they didn't anymore. This made Darwin suspect species had changed over time in line with some existing but unpopular theories. He had also seen mockingbirds and when he got to the Galapagos he found different mockingbird species on the islands distinct among each other and from the mainland species. Because of their sheer similarity and closeness Darwin hypothesized that they had a common ancestor whose specimens had flown to the islands and changed there. However, something was missing. How did this change happen? Darwin's inspiration came from an economist, Thomas Malthus, who believed that humans reproduced faster than their food supply. Darwin realized that animals always breed beyond their available resources, so the individuals who were better at surviving would be the ones to reproduce. This way, they would pass on any traits that had helped them survive. Everything fit together, but there was a final hurdle. Darwin, like the society he lived in, was deeply religious, and all the evidence he'd found contradicted Christian beliefs. It would take him over 20 years to write and publish his revolutionary book on the Origin of Species. But when he finally did, it became one of the most influential
1: scientific treatises. Hold oh, on, you notice there? They only give you the part on the Origin of Species. They don't give you the rest of the title, like I said in the be- just in the slide before. They always leave that part out, which is a crucial part to this. Tis of all time. So it's, you know, it's amazing what they did. And just looking at what Darwin, his standpoint, right? He said he was deeply religious. Well, that would mean you believe in the creator, the creation. Nope. We're gonna we're gonna start this whole monkey idea that you know we we started as jelly in the ocean and you know became a tadpole and then worked our way up to an ape and yeah crazy shit. So let's look at this clip right here. This is gonna give us an overview of where we're going. Leading men of science from Harvard. Oh, hold on. No, th- what this is this is. Who are the people that are leading this effort? She just said the leading scientists at Harvard, keep listening. in
2: Princeton and Columbia University were saying that Africans were midway between an orangutan and a human being. So a hundred years later, it should not come as much of a surprise that many people still cling to uh, these notions of European superiority, African inferiority.
1: Okay. So that's what we're dealing with. The leading uh, these are Ivy Leagues: Columbia, Harvard, Yale. They're saying that you know an orangutan is one step away from human, you know, and 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 that the black people are the missing link. This is this is just blatant racism. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I mean, ah, unbelievable. Okay, so let's get into it a little more here. It was
4: eighteen fifty nine three months after charles darwin published his book on the origin of species american promoter pt barnum unveiled a new attraction at his popular museum in new york city it featured what was described as the what is it or man monkey visitors were told that the creature had been captured by hunters in africa who discovered a race of beings roving among the trees and branches like apes and monkeys Museum staff declared that the creature had been pronounced by scientists as a connecting link between African blacks and lower animals. In reality, Barnum's so-called man-monkey was an African-American man named William Henry Johnson. Thanks to Barnum, Johnson spent much of his life on public display as an evolutionary missing link, sometimes in a cage.
1: Okay, so that's a start. First of all, this guy is an American right that just blows it out of my mind right away and he's willing to act in this play as the uh, an ape essentially and claim to be the missing link And, and people paid to go see this many reporters at the time were happy
4: to promote the deception the New York Tribune declared that Barnum's performer seemed to be a cross between an ape species and a Negro While another paper declared
3: the head is shaped like that of a monkey, but the face is more like
1: that of an African Negro of the lower order. It has been pronounced an African Negro of the lower order. Wow. I mean, guys, this is these are the same parasites that are in power today, making decisions today. This is where we came from.
3: ...by naturalists as a specimen of the connecting link between man and monkey.
4: ...the lower stages of human evolution eventually reached far beyond freak shows. It ultimately involved the most elite members of the scientific community. And it was given a platform at one of the most celebrated events in early 20th century America.
1: Ah, we will get there. Where do you think it showed up? I already gave you a hint in the beginning. Chicago, but it was also another giant World Fair. So, oh, it just keeps getting better. Okay, so we talked about Barnum, right? And how Barnum has no problem exploiting people. You know, his quote-unquote freak shows, the greatest show on earth. Um, so, he's got a very shady past. And one of the things that I found interesting looking at him, aside from, you know, he, he has this Joyce Heth at, at his, you know, show. He has he had Congo, the the black, you know, not even the American who he said was the missing link between uh, man and uh, ape or orangutan. But here, let's get into Barnum. So in 1865, Barnum's American Museum burned to the ground while fleeing animals jumped from its windows trying to escape. No one knows how the fire started, though it's been blamed on a faulty chimney. The good news is uh, it was insured, though it's hard to say whether that was true of his second museum, that burned down in 1868 so two fires within 3 years or his circus that burned down in 1872 or his Connecticut mansion that burned down in 1857 and I'm I'm from Connecticut originally well not really I wasn't born there but I spent most of my life in Connecticut and I didn't even realize his mansion in Bridgeport that he had down there amazing and uh yeah burned 1857. So, within, let's see, 57 to 72, 17 years, four fires of his properties. Now, granted, listen, he obviously owns more than most people, but it's ironic that two museums, his mansion, and one of his circuses all burned down within a 15-year period. Not saying anything, just connecting dots it's very interesting so this is him you know advertising the half ape half man at the central congo the relic of a wild tribe in africa to appear at the central in lowell and so in 1882 uh pt barnum requested representatives from all uncivilized races in existence during this time violence against indigenous uh australians was rampant, and the entire uh, tribes were being forcibly removed from their traditional lands and taken to church-run communities to become indentured slaves. Congo, the ape-man that we were just talking about, was an African American. I love that term. um African- American. What's that mean? <laughs> okay, so uh, publicly exhibited as a missing link. In the early 1900s he was usually exhibited in a cage next to a chimpanzee come on guys this is this is less than 125 years ago it's insanity to think about this is this is how we are where we are it didn't start here so here's another one Crow farini uh lived from 1876 to 1926 was an American sideshow performer who was born with hypertrichosis and took part in the 19th century exhibition tours in North America and Europe. Now, it's funny that she says she's American. She's not an American, okay? (laughs) Not at all. And here it says she was adopted by William Leonard Hunt. That's the gentleman pictured there. Also known as Guillermo Antonio Farini, who exploited her appearance. Throughout her life, she was falsely advertised as a primitive human and billed as the missing link between humans and apes. What about a little dignity for this little girl? It is claimed that in 1881, so at the age of five, Crow and her parents were captured during an expedition conducted by explorer Carl Bach in now what is known as Northern Thailand and Laos. An anthropologist named Dr. George Shelley was part of the expedition that took charge of Crow. She spent several decades exhibiting herself. She died from influenza April 16th, 1926. This poor girl with hyperchicosis, which, you know, makes you have hair everywhere, extreme hair, (laughs) was told, was billed as the missing link between human and apes. This was in the early 1900s again guys (laughs) we're not talking hundreds of thousands hundreds or thousands of years ago less in early 1900s all right this is a a little uh, piece from the pbs documentary that i found that was really good also on a bunch of different things with uh freak shows human zoos uh racism it was real interesting
5: circuses amusement parks and zoos all exploited curiosities for their audiences even human ones freak shows at some human zoos at others popularized by german wild animal trader and trainer Karl hagenbeck this exploitation trend went global.
1: So Hagenbeck was one of the many folks involved in animal entertainment that drew different boundaries than most of us do today between between humanity and the animal kingdom. In the late 1800s, he had what he called people exhibits.
5: Hagenbeck's ethnographic exhibits displayed people from all over the globe, from the Sami people of Northern Europe to the Sinhalese people of Sri Lanka. The city of denver provided no exception to this curiosity in 1900 the city brought members of the hickorya apache nation to city park for nine days where the zoo served as a backdrop for their encampment
1: amazing amazing and this this carl hagenbeck is a piece of work and we're gonna get into him here in a minute but Here's an idea of some of the exhibits that you saw and what and the portrayals. Okay. So, what they're creating are stereotypes of people. And now, what are we, you know, deemed racist for now are the stereotypes that were ingrained in us through television, through education, through radio programs, through stories, novels, books. Right. There were these stereotypes. And this is part of the uh, last great reset. Right. They were starting to rank people and who were up top in their in this European colonial dominated society. It was the white. Then everybody else was below them. Right. And so they had to put out this stereotype of these people to make them seem inferior. So the Arabs, they were portrayed as like Thousand and One Nights from the thirteen hundreds, like these very backwards, backwood, you know, back time, old time people. American Indians were uh, like the cowboy Indian books of time, right? You have the South Sea Islanders were bare breasted and carefree, right? You had the black Africans were shown as savage hunters with spears, just a step above wild animals even though mo- most Africans at the time were herders and farmers. And they even had one show that was called Gorilla Negroes. I mean, it's just, it's inexcusable all this. And that's why people need to know about it. Cause it's one of those things that they just slide right past in history class. So I, I mentioned our, this guy, Carl Hagenbeck before. Okay. So they term these things ethnological expositions rather than calling them human zoos, ethnological expositions is how they love to use their word magic, which featured indigenous people who are forcibly removed from their homelands, locked inside human zoos and put on display for public viewing, much like animals. Okay. It, it explains how millions of Caucasians were manipulated into accepting the myth of inequality of the races that morphed into racial discrimination. Many people were kidnapped and sold to zoos. Others told half truths to get them to volunteer, right? They were lured in. Many of the performers died because of foreign diseases or horrible living conditions and freezing conditions because they were, you know, they would take these South Sea Islanders naked in Chicago. In in fall or at nighttime, you know, I mean, this isn't where their their habitat, this isn't where they're from. These zoos were a favorite place for a certain type of anthropologist. Namely, these were the ones that were working on the theories of biological racism which basically suggested there were distinct physical differences between races that made some inferior and others superior. Again, these are these Ivy League fucks and these black hat parasites that have to come up with a narrative to make themselves and their way that they're instituting now work. And and what did they do? they went from and look what time frame we're dealing with late 1800s which is when especially in america in america slavery ended so what did they have to do they had to find a new way to enslave humans and that it, it, this is showing us this is the the basically the passing of the torch you would say from you know physically having slaves to now you are the slave to the system, debt slaves. So the late 19th century obviously had a lot of colonialism and the human zoos played a huge role in the public perception on how it was perfectly acceptable for European powers to go stampeding into co- other countries. And I'll add American, America in there too, into other countries, planting flags and declaring that they were in charge. The idea of look at these people, clearly they're savages and are much better off as a colony. (laughs) That explains America in a nutshell. That's what they did to the natives. And it's what the Europeans did throughout their colonies. And you'll look at these people. This is a Sudanese troop in 1876 that Hagenbeck had. Here's an Eskimo family that was uh, exhibited in the Berlin or Hamburg Zoo. They adopted Christianity, quote unquote, and took German names. The first big ethnological exposition, aka Human Zoo, was organized in 1874 by a wild animal merchant from Hamburg, Carl Hagenbeck. Hagenbeck traded rare and exotic animals, and he was also the first to add a human element his show. So not only was he big into, you know, the animals that you would need for a zoo, he he could get them apparently, but now he was going to add people to these exhibits and really spice it up a little bit. You know, real good guy, real, real uh, entrepreneur here. He had the idea to open zoos that weren't filled with animals, but also people. People were excited to discover humans from abroad before television and color uh, photography were available, it was their only way to see them. And that's like I was saying before, a lot of they they didn't have exposure to these people. So again, how do you implant your message, your perspective of them than putting them in a zoo? I mean with animals, okay? I mean we're not we're not total savages here. We'll give them animals too we'll put them in equal ground i mean this is just insanity guys he may have been the first to create uh zoo exhibits featuring humans but the idea of displaying people for a large-scale entertainment goes back a long way to at least the 15th century and i'd say even before that back when columbus brought native americans back to europe again this whole columbus guy real good guy right he brought native americans back to europe writing They should be good servants. We'll take hence. Six natives for your highness. Those people were then paraded through the streets of major Spanish uh, cities like Seville and Barcelona. Okay. Come on. In 1874, he decided to exhibit Samoan and Samai people, uh, also known as Laplanders, as purely natural populations with their tents, weapons, sleds near a group of reindeer. He took it one step further, staging the exhibitions. Laplanders would appear accompanied by reindeer. Egyptians would ride camels in front of cardboard pyramids. Fijians uh, would be living in huts and had bones as accessories in their hair. I mean, (laughs) Hagenbeck sold visitors an illusion of world travel with his human zoos. A, yeah, a real, he didn't, I mean, these people are insane. In these ethnological expositions, we embodied Europeans' perception of Africans in the 1920s and 30s, uneducated savages wearing raffia skirts. His name still graces the Hamburg Zoo. In his memoirs, Hagenbeck praised himself by saying that it was my privilege to be the first in the civilized world to present these shows of different races. What began as a thirst for knowledge on the part of the populace soon turned into false science by the mid-1800s as researchers set out to prove their theory of contrasting divisions in the human race. So then we get to that by the late 1800s, Europe was filled with a number of human zoos in Paris, Germany, Belgium, Spain, London, Italy, Russia. New York um, also had some, okay? So then we get to Albert Jeffrey, St. Hilaire, similar uh human zoo exhibition in the jardine uh well i'm not even going to try and pronounce that in paris in 1877 two ethnological exhibitions presenting nubians and greenlandic inuit to the public thereby doubling the number of visitors of the zoo so he took nubians africans and people from greenland you know what we would call Eskimos, in a sense, Inuits, brought them to a zoo. Just like fans wanted to see stars close up today, visitors at the time wanted to see their Fijians, Eskimos, or Samoans. When one group decided to stay hidden in their hut during the last presentation of a day in the Berlin Zoo in November 1881, get this, thousands of visitors protested by pushing down the fences and walls and destroying the banks it gets even wilder later with this guy otter wait for that story in 1878 and 1889 uh, the paris world fairs was celebrating 100 years of liberty equality and fraternity it did so by putting on an exposition universal or as it's known uh or what was known as a negro village that attracted an overwhelming 28 million visitors who focused their eyes on the 400 stripped down and partially naked Africans and Aboriginals that were thrown into cages as a main attraction and paraded like animals inside the human zoos in front of a large, captivated crowd. Aborigines, Nubians, Egyptians, and Native Americans in Paris were dressed in fanciful costumes and exhibited in villages. Other cities such as London, Chicago, Barcelona, and Brussels also held similar exposition, exhibitions, including Australia, which had its own variations of human zoos. Intellectuals were considering where to draw the line between human and animals. They arranged humans ranked in order from the lightest to the darkest skin tones, believing Africans were ape-like. They were not sure whether to include apes as Africans or Africans as apes. Perfectly legit, right, guys? Sounds right. It's, again, this is, these are the parasites. They always have to do this. It's about control of people, resources, everything. He trained animals for circuses at my favorite fair. The uh, World Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893 and Louisiana Purchase Expo in St. Louis in 1904. Remember before how I said there was another one? Yeah, he had a good setup at St. Louis in 1904. His circus was one of the most popular attractions. His collection included large animals and reptiles. Many of the animals were trained to do tricks. So then you get to Germany and Uh, They had what was called the People's Show. Africans were brought in as zoo exhibits for viewing and inspection by the audience with an average of 300,000 visitors coming to see every show in each city. The World's Fair was visited by 28 million during 1889 that we talked about in France. Okay, 1900 World's Fair followed suit in Marseille. 1906 and uh, 1922 in Paris, 1907 and 1931, which displayed naked and half-naked human in cages. In just six months, Paris attracted 34 million people to its expo. Hagenbeck's display, called Gala Troop, consisted of a group of individuals of the Oromo tribe who were kidnapped. Yes, kidnapped from Ethiopia. This perverted industry also affected many indigenous Australians in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. They were taken from northern Australia and placed in human zoos with animals to be exhibited around North America and Europe. The Australian indigenous Australians were living on the continent for thousands of years prior to the arrival of the British uh, colonial settlers in 1788. We're an estimated one and a half million Aboriginals, right? So 1788 by 1901. So within 115 years, less than 115 years, there were less than 100,000 left. That's genocide, guys. Pure and simple. But it goes off as colonization, Right. Think about that. There was a million and a half Aboriginals by 1901. There were less than a hundred thousand left. They were declared to be the missing link between man and ape, which was pleasing to those audiences in search of exoticism and the thrill of the unknown. It's it's mental. So here's some of the villages. You know, you look at this is what they did, right? They put them with zebras here. This is one of France's Negro villages. This is the gala troop that we were just talking about. Below, you have uh, Somalians in St. Petersburg, Russia on the left. And then good old Hagenbeck with his uh, Somalians in 1927. So less than 100 years ago, guys. This was going on. And, you know, I mean, all of us went to the circus for the most part. But this, it gets even crazier. Up until the 1930s, there were some 400 human zoos in Germany. 1930s guys just before world war ii there are 400 human zoos in germany 1931 paris world fair attracted 34 million like we said and even as late as april 1994 an ivory coast village was kept as part of an african safari in uh port saint pierre near Nantes, france crazy 1958 belgium <laughs> Two hundred sixty-seven people from the Congo were put on display. Oh, okay, they, never mind. They, I misread that. They imported two hundred sixty-seven from the Congo to be put on display in one of their zoos. Sometimes it was against their will, and sometimes they were given a vague idea of what they were doing. Again, they were lured in and promised a promise they'd be allowed to go home. Many of them didn't make it home. Never did. Children and even babies were put on display inside these human zoos. There was a little black girl named Jackie down on the bottom here who was kept in a human zoo as a monkey to attract tourists while dressed in Western clothing in a Congolese village at the 1958 1958 World's Fair in Brussels, Belgium. The little girl was given a banana by an outstretched hand while a white spectator uh, of a white spectator at the hosted people show the patrons and the girl were separated by wooden fences as they watched in amazement and like rubbed their hair and cuz they never felt black hair before and like you would go pet an animal right it's disgusting it's so <coughs> reprehensible oh my god up until august 2005 a london zoo was still displaying human beings wearing fig leaves and as late as 2007, an Adelaide zoo was still housing people in an age-old ape cage during the day. <laughs> so that's less than 15 years, you know, less than 20 years ago. It was still going on. It is an estimated that more than 25,000 indigenous people were brought to fairs around the world between 1880 and In 1930. So in 50 years, 25,000 people. Unbelievable. (laughs) The people struggled under harsh and changing conditions. And that's an estimate by the uh, parasites. So I would say you at least double that, if not quadruple that number. Many of them had to change their hair. Now, how is that any different than slavery? Right? They were lured there to do a job promised they might go home, and They knowingly they would never return. It, it's so unconscionable when you think about this shit. Oh, many of them had to change their hair, their clothes, their entire appearance to fit expectations of what the organizers and the audiences were supposed to perform for, right? They had this, this perception they have to keep up. Some people were the targets of racist violence while they were on display, while others experienced more subtle forms of violence and were used as subjects of scientific study on racial differences during the exhibition. And many people died during these exhibitions. It is estimated that from 1870 to the 1930s, more than 1.5 billion, billion with a B, People visited and paid to see the natives on display at these colonial expositions, circuses, human zoos, freak shows, and simulated natural villages. So what better way to program the world than for 1.5 billion people before the 1930s seeing this? It's TV beforehand, guys, right? That's the purpose of these expos, there was no television. There was no cell phone. There was no internet. There, there was newspaper. There was no radio even yet, really, for the public until the 1900s. And and so how did they get their message across? How did they indoctrinate? How did they brainwash? How did they uh, just give you what you should know? right? And this is why I say question everything, because you're getting a perspective that isn't always hundred percent real. Somebody has to profit from this a lot of the time. And once you realize that, then you'll start seeing, okay, maybe I can't take everything that I learned growing up at face value. So, like I said, that my first, Exposure to these human zoos was the Chicago World Fair. And here you'll see some different people that were featured there. You have Bedouins and Dahmins. Um, you had Eskimo villages. Uh, here's an ethnic village of the Chicago World Fair. They exposed Americans to different cultures. But they also promoted a stereotype. Right? I mean, it's it's amazing what they did. They had Native Americans. Then they have this. The uh, 1883, the Walguru clan from Palm Island was taken and placed in a human zoo in Chicago. Now, here's an interesting story. Check this out. So this group of Bolivians, the Aymara, Aymara Bolivians, were brought to New York destined for the Chicago World Fair in 1893, but got stranded in New York. Guess what happened? Well, they were they were, you know, they were brought to the U.S. They never made it to Chicago. They attempted to make a living by putting on their own musical shows in New York and Philadelphia. But everywhere they went, they were basically told that they weren't exotic enough. After an unsuccessful tour with the circus through Philadelphia, the group was abandoned by their managers. And um, a member of the group dubbed the Giant by the press died shortly after they walked back to New York City. <laughs> The rest of the group eventually found work in fairs and on Coney Island, but could only find work making feather headdresses and performing supposed North American, Native American dances for a New York audience. Now, mind you, these people are Bolivian. They're doing Native American dances for New York audience. They struggled to make it back to Bolivia. So, I mean, again, they were brought here for the World Fair. I mean, look at all these different people. Now, the interesting thing about this one, and again, this is my OCD kicking in and how many times I've looked at these pictures and things like that. One of the things you'll notice is that this gentleman here that is featured as an Arab here, while he's featured as an Egyptian up here, he's featured as a, um, you know, like someone from the Caucasus over here. It's very interesting how they used him in many different roles to pose in these uh, things. So just one of those things that you have to also keep a lookout for. There is a lot of uh, interesting little tricks they play. See, here he is again. He's right here. It's the same guy over and over again. It's it's pretty funny. But again, this is a woman from Java. She had a replica wooden hut with her textiles. There's an African tribe up here um you know it's just it's very interesting stuff so then we're gonna get i think we're going to st louis now guys let's take a look today forest park in st louis is a place for walking or riding a
4: bicycle or spending a quiet sunday afternoon but more than a century ago it was one of the most visited locations in the entire united states the site of the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair attracting more than 19 million visitors the World's Fair was known for its lavish neoclassical buildings its 22-story high ferris wheel and the public debut of innovations such as the x-ray machine and the ice cream cone. But the fair had a darker side Organizers imported thousands of indigenous peoples from around the world to be put on public display in what was essentially a giant human zoo. Unlike freak shows, the human zoo in St. Louis was created with the cooperation of America's scientific establishment. The man behind the human zoo was anthropologist William McGee. One of the nation's leading scientists, McGee had already served as acting president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. That's the black hats. In 1903, he was asked to head the anthropology department for the World's Fair. McGee had grand plans of presenting the story of human evolution by displaying representatives of what he considered lower stages of the human race. McGee's plans reflected the ideas of mainstream anthropology of the time.
2: Anthropology was kind of founded on this idea of mapping um, civilization from the highest to the lowest, right? With the lowest at that time said to be Africans, and then you sort of move up. Leading men of science from Harvard and Princeton and Columbia University were saying that Africans were midway between an orangutan and a human being.
4: Like many scientists of his day, McGee drew inspiration for his ideas on human development from Darwin's theory that humans had evolved from ape-like ancestors.
2: Darwin's theory provided a template for categorizing Africans as biological inferiors. His impact created a bandwagon effect on many scholars on both sides of the Atlantic. Africans were demeaned with terms like savages and compared to animals. Admittedly, some of these comparisons were used before Darwin, but after Darwin, they increasingly took on the authority of science.
1: In the name of science, guys, the most racist shit you're ever gonna see comes from science. <laughs> Go figure. Now I. One of the questions I ask, and it's kind of a uh, rhetorical question, is why did they need to project themselves as superior? Why this desire to be so much greater than these people? Why not be willing to work with these people? And that's part of this whole great reset that we've seen. in the, you know, this n- latest one that we saw in the late 1800s, early 1900s up through today. It's this dominance by the parasite class. They have to control everything and everyone and it's gone from physical domination to now it's mental um you know, they got you trapped on your phone, a lot of people, schools, public education, I mean you name it, medical, we saw the the tomfoolery that they pulled during you know the Wu flu, and it's it's just amazing. So let's look at this black hat, Mister William McGee, who was appointed the uh, geologist for the USGS, United States Ge- Geological Survey, in 1881. In 1884, he authored the article map of the United States, exhibiting the present status of knowledge relating to the. Uh, Aerial distribution of geological groups for the USGS Journal. Okay, so then he's uh, involved the Bureau of American Ethnology, right? Nothing wrong here. It was established in 1879 by an act of Congress for the purpose of transferring archives, records, and materials relating to the Indians of North America from the Interior Department To the Smithsonian Institution. Why is that important? Well, now you're taking the records from the Interior Department of the government and giving them to the Smithsonian. And we know the Smithsonian's track record. As much as everyone wants to paint them as these, you know, altruistic institution, it is far from it. It is blemished. It has hidden up many things. It has altered history to fit its narrative. It has a narrative to push, which is very, very interesting. So McGee's official connection with anthropology began with his transfer in 1893 to the post of ethnologist in charge of the Bureau of American Ethnology to director From 1893 to 1903. So he was basically working for the Smithsonian for 10 years. Then in 1904, he was the chief of the Department of Anthropology uh, that organized the quote-unquote anthropology days at the 1904 Summer Olympics and Louisiana Purchase Expo, the 1904 World's Fair. So it's very interesting. Smithsonian. And the 1904 World's Fair, close ties right there in the ethnology department. As head of the anthropology department at the St. Louis World's Fair, he was determined to showcase indigenous peoples at the fair to dramatize for the public the different stages of human evolution, beginning with the races that he considered lowest on the evolutionary scale. McGee arranged for native peoples to be put on display in villages designed to recreate their native habitats. These villages were enclosed by fences, making them truly seem like human zoos. More than 4 million fairgoers reportedly visited these anthropological displays, eagerly staring at and poking at the indigenous peoples in their enclosures. There you go. Another top hat serving his purpose. So you, you saw all sorts of stuff in St. Louis. You had Geronimo. Geronimo who was the great Apache chief who was there to sign autographs and was put on display. Um, it, the 1904 had world's fair had 2000 primi- quote unquote, primitive peoples on display. And it says the purpose of the display was to demonstrate the superiority of the white Americans and Europeans who had evolved further. And that's what this is. This is tied back to Darwin, Right survival of the races most fittest st louis world fair opened. it featured not only scientific and trade exhibitions but also a number of living exhibits the largest one was the philippine exposition which housed over a thousand filipinos from different tribes and had over 130 buildings 47 acres was turned into the philippine reservation And why? Well, the U.S. had been involved in a war with the Philippines that had only ended two years before. So they just scooped him up, brought him back home after the war. It says that explains why it was the responsibility of the U.S. War Department and then military governor of the Philippines and future president William H. Taft. Okay, so it's not just these scientists. A future president was involved in helping with the human zoos. To gather around 1,400 Filipinos for the exhibit. The message was clear. These are people conquered in the name of white progress. There's really no other way to, to explain it. You can't just, you can't argue it. It is what it is. So, within the Filipino vi- uh, exhibition, the Igorot village uh, attracted the most visitors. It was advertised as the least civilized. Of all the villages, these are human beings, guys. It just it hurts to even re. And that's why I've I've taken a little bit to get this episode out because I researched it for real hard for a while. It got dark. I had to put it away. I I wrapped up the presentation the other night, and you know I finally got some time tonight to sit down and record it. But this is dark shit. These are human beings we're talking about like animals like less than it's it's so disheartening that this even took place and and the fact that it took place less than 150 years ago is is just mind-boggling so and it featured them the filipino semi-nude and were offered dogs to cook and eat daily they're also made to perform ceremonies and dance for the entertainment of the visitors it also offered n- other native habitats Uh, We were like North Americans, Ainu from Japan, and more uh, performed and posed for photographs. The only Black Americans were represented uh, in an exhibit called The Old Plantation. There, actors staged religious revivals, worked in the garden, and sang songs about how wonderful it was to be a slave. Think about that. Human zoos. Ha- helped people believe that atrocities and racism weren't so atrocious atrocious after all right that's what they're trying to do here they're trying to 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 make this seem like it's okay because these people are good with it like this is this is how they lived we're just helping them out right we're here to help words you never want to hear from the U.S. government we're here to help run run when you hear that. So I was listening to uh, a podcast with Howdy McCoskey, and he was uh, reading an article here from from the Buffalo paper about this old plantation exhibit. So give it a listen here.
3: The, the way the Buffalo Evening News suggested people should go to the old plantation. Genuine
4: southern darkies, 200 of them raging in years from wee toddling pickaninnies to negroes gray and bent with age can be seen each day at the exposition in their different occupations and pastimes oh lovers of negro melodies will have a feast many of the darkies will be selected because of their special talents as singers and banjo players and they will dance and sing to the seductive tinklings of in- instruments exactly as the negroes of the south used to do a long long time ago
1: oh unbelievable that's in the newspaper guys Look okay. it. here's some of the exhibits Okay, So this was an unidentified African man that was displayed at the World Fair in St. Louis. He was referred to as the Missing Link. This picture over here of the natives, his chief yellow hair, and his council standing in front of replica of teepees at the St. Louis World Fair. They had an event called the Savage Olympics Exhibition where they would shoot bow, archery, and things like that. I mean... Guys, it's just, and then this, this part is what got me this story right here. Okay. So there was this gentleman named Otabenga, and he was brought over for the St. Louis World Fair. Okay. And then after the fair, they decided, ah, let's use him in the Bronx Zoo. With an ape. And that's why you see over here, September uh, 9th, 1906, Bushman shares a cage with Bronx Park apes. Luckily, there was some pushback. The Man and Monkey show disapproved by clergy. Doc, uh, the Reverend Dr. MacArthur thinks the exhibition is degrading. Well, no shit. So, what did they do with this guy? Okay. One of the most infamous exploitations of individuals involves a young man named Oda Benga, a mabuti pygmy four feet 11 inches tall. In 1904, an American missionary and explorer was hired by the St. Louis World Fair to acquire, quote unquote, kidnap a African pygmy to the fair for exhibition. He was 23 years old when he was discovered in the African Congo. Benga from the De- Democratic Republic of the Congo was purchased by the missionary from the Bastro tribe for several bags of salt and a spool of brass wire at the fair. He was displayed with a large group of black people, um, but which also included a separate presentation. This entertainment was part of the primate production. Okay. After being exploited at the fair, without pay uh the missionary returned benga and the other a- uh, captured african pygmies to their home but when he discovered that all members of his tribe had since been killed benga did not feel at home and asked to return with the missionary to the u.s now this think about that okay they picked him up in probably because these fairs went from like May to October usually, so they probably picked him up in February or March, maybe April. By the time they brought him back after the fair, which was probably December-ish, November, December fairs usually wrapped up in October. His tribe was gone. They'd either all been killed or taken away. Six months wiped out again. Genocide, guys. This is this is. There's so, this is so deep and I don't think many people understand the just dehumanization is one, but the, the genocide that took place and we're supposed to celebrate it in the name of colonialism. We're giving them better life. What says, who says that our life is better than theirs? And look, there's nobody sicker on this planet than Americans as a whole. None. But now we go and we're bringing spreading democracy. You're spreading democracy like herpes around the world. It's not democracy. It's an STD. It's what we bring around the world. Destruction, chaos, mayhem. So after uh, after being thrown in a cage with primates as his companions, Otto Benga was co- uh, constantly forced to carry around chimpanzees and other apes, a performance that was endorsed by amateur anthropologist Madison Grant, secretary of the New York Zoological Society, and future celebrated eugenicist. It's- Benga was often showcased with an orangutan named Dohong. At times he would wrestle with orangutans, but he did also other tricks with apes and uh, to entertain large crowds who came to see the specimen of an inferior human at the zoo. When Bango was not with the animals, he would use his bow and arrow to shoot at various targets or make funny faces at the audience. His teeth were filed down into sharp points as was culturally acceptable and considered attractive in his tribe. But the zookeepers... uh, use this to their advantage and began sprinkling bones on the floor of the cage to make him even look more vicious barbaric and savage right they, they he was a cannibal is what they were alluding to it's reported that up to forty thousand people came to the zoo every day to see benga in a cage or doing the odd task the horrific treatment of benga uh the congolese pygmy who was exhibited in New York's Bronx Zoo in 1906, eventually sparked some serious outrage from the Christian community, which eventually led to him being free. He was moved from Brooklyn to then Lynchburg, Virginia. Guys, I went to school in Lynchburg, Virginia for a semester. And God, that's the last place you want to send him. I couldn't do six months there. Oh, where a number of families housed him and tried to educate him and lead a normal life. In March of 1916, he ended his own life. His life was so good within 12 years of coming here, he killed himself because he couldn't, he couldn't fit in. Then we have Sarah Bartman, which is another wild story. Okay. So she was known as hottentots Venus because of her elongated labia, coupled with a genetic trait called uh, stadiopygia, which causes the buttocks to protrude and stand out. White people were captivated at seeing the genitalia of a black woman, right? How degrading is that? For many years, working class Londoners crowded the cage to shout vulgarities at Sarah Bartman, And her protruding buttocks but secretly her contours were greatly admired and desired by the countrymen this caused european women to start imitating that shape by designing and wearing a large pad around their waist called a bustle to mimic sarah's Sarah's protruding and curvy posterior sarah bartman soon found herself being exhibited nude in cages as a sideshow attraction and at one such event She drew the attention of Dr. George Cuvier, Napoleon's general surgeon. Eventually, she turned to prostitution to support herself after settling in Europe for about five years. In December 1815, at the age of 25, Sarah Bartman died in poverty as a result of the many cruel and inhumane experiments that were done on her body in the name of science. Again, guys, science. It's a cult, and it is has no little concern for humanity little it's done a lot of good things but it has done some of the most atrocious things unimaginable things like this okay um so fascinated were the europeans with a curvaceous body of sarah bartman that dr george Cuvier wasted little time in making a plaster model of her brain and preserved her buttocks sexual organs, and skeleton for display at the Museum of Mankind in Paris, where they remained until 1974. In 2002, President Nelson Mandela formally requested the return of her remains, so Sarah Bartman finally returned home after leaving her homeland in South Africa 200 years earlier to be respectfully buried. Now, I always wondered this about that style, right? And if you're watching here, you see this European woman, and they have a very hourglass figure up top, but then at the waist, all of a sudden, it was like something exploded on their backside, and it uh, didn't seem like it would be very comfortable. It didn't look like it was easy to sit. Well, they were mimicking Sarah Bartman because they felt like she was more feminine almost than them. It was a sign of, and, and it, you know Sarah Bartman is the OG Kim Kardashian right there with that donk donk. Look at that thing, man. Oof. But that's some sad shit, what they did to this poor woman. The experiments, the harassment, all of it. And then you heard them mention in the earlier video about the Apaches in Denver in 1900. Yep, they did the same thing to them. Temporary teepees at a city park. They, they were camped uh, encamped under trees near an old pavilion. And all day were admired by hundreds who went out to see them. I mean, <laughs> and this is in the 1900, guys. Less than 125 years ago. Here's some posters advertising human zoos. You know, you see the naked African woman up here. Uh, you see women and animals. You know, they aren't the most greatest portrayals of humanity. So then you, here you have a couple of these black hats that uh and and some of the displays that they had here's Bill Hunt he had a Canadian he was a Canadian Explorer displaying South African people in London of 1884. you see uh Eskimos over here in the Berlin Zoo in 1880 I think that's the same family we showed before see some Aboriginals here okay for the 1884 Crystal Palace in London Here's some more Africans displayed at the Belgian zoo in 1905, right? Look at these, the, the the white people down here just watching these African folks in a pool of water like they're like watching crocodiles. <laughs> it's just, oh, it's amazing. No wonder why we are where we are. And look at this. They have this woman caged in with holding a baby. And there's people on the other side of the fence, like, looking at her in amazement, like she's an animal, like an exotic animal. Just unbelievable. Over here, we have 1931. We have uh, Professor Lutz Heck, a German zoologist posing with an African family he brought to the Berlin Zoo in Germany in 1931. So less than 100 years ago right there. Wilhelm II, German's emperor, examining some Ethiopians positioned behind a wooden fence in the Hamburg Zoo in Germany of 1909. Here's Hagenbeck's Sudanese troop up here. Down over here, we have the uh, Somalia in the uh, zoo in Basel, Switzerland in 1930. Right, Norway, 1914, same thing. France, 1907. France, 1931. Natives from the Congo. I mean, you name it, guys. They're just... Look at humans on display in France. Just... I mean, it's like a zoo enclosure. You know, you have you have walls. You have a whole little... What's it called? Uh, terrarium for them. And here's an 1886... Featuring pygmies in Paris, France. I mean, (laughs) the most civilized nations do the nastiest shit. Okay, so here you go. An Ashanti from Berlin Zoo, 1958. A black girl naked on display in Brussels, 1958. All right. This is what we are going to end on. This is going to be the outro um this is a a decently long actually let's let's play it we'll play it here it's a couple minutes he gets it fair william mcgee expressed a similar view arguing that
4: scientists had now shown
3: the structure of the lowest humans more nearly resembles that of the highest ape-like animals than that of the highest humans
4: like other scientists of the era McGee saw primitive non white peoples as living evidence of man's evolutionary history. The savage stands strikingly close to subhuman species in every aspect of
1: mentality, as well as in bodily habits and bodily structure.
4: McGee was determined to use primitive peoples at the fair to dramatize for the public the different stages of human evolution, beginning with races he considered lowest on the evolutionary scale. Magee arranged for native peoples to be put on display in villages designed to recreate their native habitats. These villages were enclosed by fences, making them truly seem like human zoos. More than 4 million fairgoers reportedly visited these anthropological displays, eagerly staring at and poking at the indigenous peoples in their enclosures. Adding to the indignities, native peoples were pressured to participate in a series of athletic contests designed to show they were biologically inferior to whites. Those on display were also subjected to experiments in a special laboratory set up by the fair's anthropology department. Directed by a psychology professor from Columbia University, the lab conducted tests to measure native people's intelligence and physical features and even their threshold for pain. Some scientists came to the fair with more gruesome plans. Alish Herdlichka was an anthropologist at the Smithsonian. He came to St. Louis hunting for dead bodies. Herdlichka was obsessed with analyzing the brains of other races to gain insight into human evolution. He went on to assemble a collection of hundreds of embalmed human brains, many of them still stored by the Smithsonian. Herdlichka extracted a promise from doctors in St. Louis to hand over the brains of any of the natives who might die while on display at the fair. Native peoples were brought to the St. Louis exposition from the far corners of the globe. From Japan came representatives of the Ainu people. Patagonians came from South America. Igorots and Negritos came from the Philippines. Both were thought by scientists of the time to be near the bottom of the evolutionary ladder for humans. The Negritos were even marketed at the fair as another missing link between humans and apes. But perhaps the most exotic people group brought to St. Louis for public display were pygmies from the African Congo.
0: Will the Pygmies brought last week to the World's Fair prove Darwin's theory of the missing link? Will a study of the little black children of the African jungles shed light on the theory evolved by Darwin as regards the evolution of the human race? Dr. W.J. McGee, Chief of the Anthropology Department of the World's Fair, is convinced that it will. This is the first time that the Aboriginal people of Africa have been brought to an English-speaking country. This is the first opportunity that has been presented to scientists to study them. Many characteristics were noticed in the pygmies that closely resemble the ape or the simian type. It is believed that the pygmies, who are said to represent the lowest form of human development, are next removed from the simian family.
4: The pygmies appearing at the St. Louis World's Fair had been transported from Africa by former missionary turned explorer Samuel Phillips Werner. Werner had gone to Africa with the explicit goal of finding pygmies to display at the fair.
2: He had gone to the Congo heavily armed and he had gone hunting for these people he called pygmies, these diminutive people of the Central African forest.
4: The fair's anthropologist William McGee repeatedly compared the pygmies to monkeys and apes. In the journal Science, He even asserted that pygmies were commonly considered to approach subhuman types more closely than any other variety of the genus Homo.
2: They were considered uh, by men of science at that time to be the lowest form of humans, or in some thought they were subhuman.
4: The pygmies were less than thrilled by their welcome at the fair. The
3: Americans treat us as they do our pet monkey. They laugh at us and poke their umbrellas into our faces. They do the same to our monkey. One pygmy at the fair became a special
4: celebrity. His name was Ota Benga. Samuel Verner had purchased him at a slave market. Ota Benga was advertised to fairgoers as the only genuine African cannibal in America today. For a nickel, he would display his pointed teeth that supposedly enabled him to eat human flesh. At the end of the fair, the pygmies returned to Africa with Samuel Werner. But in 1906, Werner brought Ota Benga back to America. It would prove a fateful choice. Samuel Werner returned from Africa to New York City on July 30, 1906 Arriving on the SS Armenian from Liverpool, he was accompanied by two chimpanzees, a snake, a parrot, and 50 boxes of materials from Africa that he hoped to sell to museums. He was also joined by Ota Benga. Werner quickly departed New York, leaving Benga at the American Museum of Natural History in Manhattan. Established in 1869, the museum was already becoming one of the premier scientific institutions in the world. Ota Benga was largely left free to wander the museum's exhibit halls. When Samuel Werner eventually returned to New York, he was fighting off creditors, and the museum wanted him to find new lodgings for Ota Benga. So Werner worked out an agreement to move Ota Benga to the New York Zoological Park, otherwise known as the Bronx Zoo. Spread over more than 260 acres the Bronx Zoo had been envisioned by its founders as the largest zoo in the world and the grandest zoological establishment on earth. The zoo was directed by William Temple Hornaday a noted zoologist Hornaday formerly worked at the Smithsonian and he had already founded the National Zoo in Washington DC Overseeing Hornaday was an executive committee chaired by Henry Fairfield Osborne, a distinguished professor at Columbia University. Hornaday and Osborne had dreams of exhibiting more than just animals at their new zoo. Both wanted to install Native Americans on zoo grounds, with Osborne promising that one day the Indian and his teepee would take their place next to the zoological park's buffalo. Now they had their chance to put their first human on display. Hornaday quickly agreed to purchase one of Werner's chimpanzees and to house both the chimp and Ottobenga at the zoo. Hornaday planned to exhibit the pygmy and the chimpanzee together in a cage in the zoo's monkey house.
2: It was presented as science, not as a circus act because these were men of science who, who were doing this.
4: Ota Benga went on display in the Monkey House on Saturday, September the 8th, 1906. The next day, a sign was placed on the cage explaining the new
3: exhibit. The African Pygmy, Ota Benga, age 23 years, height 4 feet 11 inches, weight 103 pounds, brought from the Kasai River, Congo Free State, exhibited each afternoon during September.
4: Thousands of New Yorkers came to stare and laugh and debate the meaning of the display. Is it a man? Some of them wondered. Newspaper coverage brought even more people, and in just a few weeks, the zoo drew nearly a quarter million visitors. But really rowdy crowds came to the zoo in order to visit the pygmy. On Sunday, September 16th, 40,000 people converged on zoo grounds to see the city's newest sensation.
1: There you go. Human zoos in the name of science. Guys, That's it's some dark stuff, but we can't deny it. We can't just sweep it under the rug. It happened. And it's why we are where we are today. And that's why they distract you with, we're all racist. When in reality, who, they tend to be the most racist. It's gaslighting. Who enacts the most racist policies? It's them, the parasite class. And, and we're not in a war of racism right now. We are in a class war. And they don't want us to realize that, so they disguise it with racism and things like that. Sexism and, you know, trans, you're anti-trans and all this stuff. No, it's about the haves versus the have-nots. And that's what it's been about since they took control of this in this last reset of the late 18th to today, 18th century to today, 19th century, you know, I mean, it's the the late seven, it's the birth of America, right, is when you start seeing everything start to change and it's not for the benefit of, of, of the normal, you know, the 99% for the benefit of that 1%. And if nothing illustrates that they are willing to do anything in the name of science, like it should be this, right? Because they, they this is the most disgusting stuff ever that you could claim that humans, because of their skin tone and the, the amount of melanin they have the level of their humanity it makes no sense and because they're closer in complexion that means they are related to apes or they're the missing link i mean guys it's just disgusting shit and what it what it did <clears throat> if you're really looking at it is Okay, it did. It made these people look less than. Like they needed help. They needed this new industrial way, this industrial revolution-led coup, the takeover. When in reality, these people were living a wholesome life for the most part, living off the land, living in it with a sense of tribe, a sense of culture. And that's one of the biggest things that america lacks is a real culture there is no culture of americans right it's it's a smorgasbord it's it's the, the the proverbial melting pot of a little of this a little of that there's and and that's huge having a culture having something you can rely on a story we create it as we go And the story of this country that I've displayed over and over again, the way it was taken over and the way it's been run since the takeover has been to benefit the few at the cost of many, at the expense of many. And it continues today. They tax the shit out of us. They send that tax money and and our money overseas. They waste it in these conflicts or wars or agendas like COVID, climate change, all this shit. Guys, it's all the same operation over and over again until you just give up and say, I'll do whatever you say. As long as you make it stop. But guess what? It never stops. It doesn't stop until you push back. And collectively, if we decide to push back, when we decide to push back, hopefully, they're going to feel it. And there's nothing they can do about it. Because there's very few of them and there are a lot of us. They need us. We don't need them. We've been told we need them, but we don't. We'd be fine without them. We'd be better off without them. We'd be healthier. We'd be happier, less stressed, living in natural life instead of the synthetic realm that they've created now. And we have to get get out of it. You have to push back. You have to draw a line. What's your line that you're going to hold ground? And when they get close, you're going to start pushing back. Because one of the things you can't do is draw a line, then take a step back. Because they're going to move forward again. You're going to take another step back. Another step back. And then your back's to the wall. And then what do you do? It's too late to fight. You have no room. Guys, and that's why it's so critical. What matters to you? What type of human are you? How do you view your fellow man? How do you treat them? Because, man, we are in some serious disharmony. And it's, it's frustrating because we're fighting each other when in reality... The enemy is the parasite class. And they are so good at this that they have us fighting with each other while they just keep picking at the scraps, taking everything they can, little by little. And sometimes not so little by little. What they did in 2020 to 2023, man, there was a billionaire created every 30 hours during the pandemic. Meanwhile, small businesses were closed. Many people couldn't work. But they gave you what? $600 check. Maybe a little bit more, maybe 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 a couple thousand in in, in total to pacify you while well, they made trillions. But we're okay, as long as they gave us something, right? That's what you have to see, guys, and this is where we have to fight back. It's not right. And it's not going to change by voting. You're not going to change it with changing the the people in there, because the system is operating exactly as it is meant to. And it's not meant to benefit us, if if you've been paying attention. So we can't fix a, bro- a, a a system that's running exactly as they want by just putting a new person in charge of it. <clears throat> that's not how it works. It's going to take a lot more than that. So with that said, human zoos. Guys, you can dig more into them, I'm sure. I just hit a point where it was so dark and I felt like I kind of did a good overview of them. And so you could get the idea of what we're dealing with here and the mindset and who the players are. And 1958 guys, it's not that long ago. There were still human zoos. Think about that. It's wild. I hope you enjoyed it if you want to support the show again, Patreon.com slash the great deception podcast, you can check out my stuff on uh, my posts on Instagram at the great deception podcast. Um, And yeah, you're going to want to watch this one in video, see the, the presentation. I thank you all stay strong and question everything. I'm
0: talking about the real owners now. The real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking.